Glad to be together again tonight. Glad that Owen is better, that we all can be here tonight and uh, study from God's Word. Sunday nights are a uh, valuable time for us to be together. I know that it's uh, more effort uh, to get dressed back up and come back out and uh, interrupt your afternoon, but it is so valuable it, from my perspective, and I hope it is from yours as well, to give us another hour to focus on God and His will and studying together and worshiping together, closing off the weekend as we get ready to go back into a week uh, that will be fraught with challenges and temptations to have time together to gain strength. I appreciate you taking the time to be together. Uh, it also is helpful for me because it gives me another opportunity to talk about the Bible and talk about topics that I think would be helpful. Uh, you think about it, if we just met once on Sunday, that would cut our time together by half on Sunday. We, I'd have one opportunity to speak with you, and I am thankful for having twice that amount of time. Along those lines, I, I want Sunday nights to be helpful to us and encouraging, and this year I want to spend time on Sunday nights, not every Sunday night and uh, uh, not every lesson, but I would like to spend some time on Sunday nights at various times throughout the year talking about things that our young people need. We have a, a, a very blessed position that uh, about 30% of our audience is young people. And uh, I think it is our imperative that we make sure that they're grounded in fundamentals uh, so that as they grow up into adulthood that they have a strong working base that they can build on as they face the challenges of life, that they've been grounded. Now, we can't do that here in two lessons on Sunday uh, if every lesson was directed to the young people. It has to happen at, in the home. Uh, but uh, we can help with that. And uh, I want to spend some time in the coming year with lessons that would be helpful to them. And these lessons can be helpful to us all. Uh, we're never too old to learn and be reminded of fundamentals, even things that we already know. It is good to be reminded of them. And so I hope that we'll all be paying attention, but especially I, I hope that the young people are paying attention to, uh, to our lessons, uh, especially the lesson tonight. Tonight I want to talk about our Bible study. As we begin the new year, hopefully you're all thinking and, and focusing on Bible study. And I want to talk about some things that will help us with that. Tonight's lesson is entitled 10 Tips to Help You with Your Bible Study. The Bible is the inspired Word of God. We say it is the result of verbal plenary inspiration. That means that every word in the original text was there because God wanted it to be there. That's what the Bible says about itself. That's the way that Jesus viewed it. Jesus viewed down to the smallest letter and the smallest punctuation mark. He viewed it was from God. He said not one jot or one tittle were going to pass from the law until all were fulfilled. Jesus said down to the very smallest punctuation mark. It's there because God wants it to be there. The Bible is inspired by God. The Bible says that. The Bible is not the only book that says that or claims that. There are lots of Bible, uh, books that claim to be inspired by God. The Book of Mormon, for one, is one that we'd be more familiar with. But there are a lot of books that claim to be inspired by God. But we can have confidence that the Bible is, in fact, inspired by God by all of its characteristics. It is a, a unified book and has harmony. There, the Bible has no contradictions. From cover to cover, it has no contradictions. And from cover to cover, it has a unified theme. In Genesis chapter 3, we learn about the fall of man. And we start to see the, the promise of a coming Messiah all the way back at the beginning of our Bible. 
They lose access to the tree of life in Genesis chapter 3. At the end of Revelation, we have now the opportunity to coming back in contact with the tree of life, a unified theme. Now, what's important about that is not that it's unified. Lots of books are unified, but it's especially remarkable that it's unified because it was written by approximately 40 different writers over a period of about 1,600 years. These writers came from different backgrounds, had different levels of education, different occupations, and yet, and they didn't know each other. They did not uh, collaborate, corroborate, 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 whatever they did. They didn't get together and talk about it and plan it out. We put their books together. They formed together a perfect book that is complete, completely unified and in harmony. And the Bible is flawless in its accuracy when it talks about various subjects. It's flawless in its presentation of those subjects. In the area of science, it's free from the misconceptions that people had in the day that the, the Bible was written. The Bible is accurate when it talks about things of medicine and about how germs are spread and how people become contaminated. It is accurate in its discussion of physics and astronomy and oceanography and biology. When it touches on scientific principles, it is completely accurate. And that's remarkable because it's talking about things that people didn't understand at that time. People, things that we have recently discovered. The Bible thousands of years ago mentioned, and it was accurate. The Bible is also accurate in its historic references to historic times and historic events. It's completely accurate. It's accurate in its reference to geography. And archaeology verifies the accuracy of the Bible in both historical and, and geo, uh, geographical uh, components. The Bible is accurate. And the Bible is, as, has to be inspired because of all the fulfilled prophecies that we read about in the Bible. The Bible uh, made prophecies that were very clear and very direct, that had obvious fulfillments, even mentioning a king before he was born by name. Over 300 prophecies specifically around Jesus and his life and his crucifixion that were fulfilled in amazing detail. The Bible has to be from God for these reasons alone and many more. And since it is the Word of God, then we ought to be excited about studying it. In, second, in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 2, we read, As newborn babes desire the pure milk of the Word that you may grow thereby. You ever seen a baby that was hungry? I'm sure we all have. I'm sure we've all heard the baby that was hungry who wanted the milk. And the baby wasn't going to be happy or satisfied until he had the milk. The milk was the most important thing in that baby's mind and that baby's life at that time. So it must be as believers, as followers of Christ, we ought to have a hunger for God's Word. It will be how we grow and we need to desire it. And so tonight, 10 tips to help us in our Bible study. These are nothing new. These are nothing that are earth-shattering. But I think it's important for us to be reminded of important things to remember as we study our Bibles. First of all, we need to appreciate the Bible for what it is. Understand that this Bible that we hold in our hands is the inspired Word of God. It is God's message to us to reveal to Him our, His will for us. And His will for us is not just to make us miserable. God is not just a being who, who is up in heaven and He looks down on earth and He says, Aha, I know how I can mess these people up. 
I'm going to give them a book that's going to tell them not to do everything that they want to do and tell them to do things that are just going to mess them up and make them sad and miserable and just wreck their lives. No. We serve a God who's a loving God, who has our best interests at heart. This is a message from God, and we need to understand that. It is our complete and final guide in all matters spiritual. 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped to every good work. The Bible is our complete and final guide in all matters spiritual. I don't need anything else than what I hold in my hands right here. I don't need any books written by men. I don't need any creeds developed by any denomination or religious organization. I don't need any wise men on top of a mountaintop to tell me what to do. I have it here. I need to understand it, and I need to respect and appreciate it for what it is. And it is, as I said, the final authority. Not my think-sos, not the think-sos of other people, not what some other person has taught me, not what a friend or family member thinks about spiritual things, not what some book or some periodical has to say about it. But the Bible is my complete and final authority. Revelation chapter 22, verse 18, tells us something very, very clear. Revelation 22, beginning verse 18. For I testify to everyone who hears the word of, words of, this, of the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds to these things, God will add to him the plagues that are written in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his part from the book of life, from the holy city, and from the things that are written in this book. The Bible is very clear. We can't add to or take away from the Bible. And someone might say, well, you know, that's really sort of strange. Who's going to go into the Bible and start tearing pages out of it? Who would do that? I've never seen anybody do that. Now, maybe somebody has. I've never seen it. You ever seen anybody just going, oh, I don't like that. I'm going to rip that one out. And who would go in and add things to the Bible? My Bible doesn't have any blank pages at the end of it. Does yours? Does yours have blank pages right after the end of it? Maybe. Maybe it does. Are there pages in the middle right after each book where you can go in and add more things? No. I don't know anybody that's doing that. Literally. But you know what? When I take what somebody says or tells me over what this says, aren't I in fact doing that in effect? If I read it here, but somebody says, no, you don't have to do that. I say, well, he must be right. He, he's got an education. He's been studying a long time. He must be right. I'm going to take what he says over this. Aren't I taken away from what this says? Or someone comes up with something that teaches me something to do or something to believe that I can't find in the Bible. I say, well, that makes sense to me. I, I, I really respect that guy. Well, that's my dad or my mom. Or that, that's my friend that I've known for, for years and, and they're really sincere. So I think that must be right. I'm adding to the Word. And God says we cannot add to or subtract. This has to be our final authority. We need to appreciate the Bible for what it is. I also understand if I have this attitude about God's Word that the Bible can be perverted by me interjecting my own think-sos and my own opinions and my own desires into it as I interpret it. You know, many times people come to the Bible with a preconceived notion, 
with a desire to prove that what they want to do is correct and right. And when they do that, they pervert many times what the Bible teaches. If I appreciate the Bible for what it is, if I appreciate God for who He is and His knowledge and understanding, then I won't interject my own think-sos, my own opinions, my own desires into the Bible as I study it. In Jeremiah, or Isaiah 55, beginning verse 8, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways, says the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. God is the final authority. His Word is the final authority. My think-sos, my opinions, my desires cannot enter into the equation. I've got to make sure that I divorce myself from those as I come to God's Word and I study it. Because if I do not do that, I'll be, I'll be tempted to pervert God's Word. And if I appreciate it for that, I'm going to make sure that I, only God's pure Word is what I want in my life. I don't want any perversion of God's Word. Newborn babes desire the sincere or the pure milk of their mother. We should desire only the sincere and pure milk of God's Word. Can you imagine bringing home a newborn baby and you're going to feed that baby and as you get ready to feed that baby you say, you know what, I'm going to mix in a little bit of stuff that's not pure. I've got a little bit of sour milk over here and I think just a little sour milk will be okay. I'm going to give it a try. Nobody would ever do that, would they? Only pure milk goes through that baby's mouth. And we, as Christians, need to desire only pure milk, no perverted milk. Nothing that's been perverted by my opinions, my think-sos, my desires. Nothing that, that has been perverted by the teachings of men. Only the sincere milk of the Word. Anything else besides the sincere and pure milk of the Word will cause souls to be lost. In Galatians chapter 1, in Galatians chapter 1, when we believe and follow the twisted or perverted, non-pure teachings of God's Word, the result is that we are led astray. Notice in Galatians 1, beginning of verse 6, I marvel that you are turning away so soon from Him who called you in the grace of Christ to a different gospel, which is not another. But there are some who trouble you and want to pervert the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel to you than what we have preached to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so say I now again, if anyone preaches any other gospel to you than what you have received, let him be accursed. That's how serious this is. When I accept that milk that's not pure, it leads me astray. It turns me away from God and from Christ. That's how serious this is. And so as I study... I need to make sure that I'm studying without preconceived notions. As I listen to teaching, and it's good to listen to teaching, but I've got to make sure that that teaching, wherever it may be, whether it be on the radio, on television, on the internet, I need to make sure that it's pure, that everything that's taught is in accordance with God's Word. Don't just take it because some guy has a television show. Don't just take it because he's got 3 million followers on YouTube. Take it because it's here in God's Word. And can I say something else? When we hear God's Word preached in this pulpit, don't take it because it's what I say or David says or anybody else says. Take it because it's what this says. Please, do me a favor. 
and make sure that it's what this says. Never take it just because it's something that I said. And we need to make sure as we appreciate God's Word for what it is, one more point along these lines, we need to make sure that we are handling it properly. 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 15 says, Be diligent to present yourself approved to God, a worker who does not need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth, or as the American Standard Version says, rightly handling the word of truth, or handling right the word of truth. We've got some more points to talk about on the, along these lines tonight, but if we'll appreciate God's word for what it is, we're going to make sure that we handle it and discern it very carefully and properly. So, number one, Appreciate the Bible for what it is. Number two, we need to be studying it regularly. If we believe that this is the inspired Word of God, that every word of it is here because God wanted it in our hands, and that He has preserved it throughout the years so that I could have a copy of it at my disposal, then I ought to be studying it regularly. I need to be studying it. In Psalm 1, verse 1 beginning. Psalm 1, verse 1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the path of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law, in his law he meditates day and night. The man of God. The man who's going to be blessed is the man who delights in the law of the Lord. It makes him happy to know about the law of the Lord. It makes him happy to think about the law of the Lord. It makes him so happy that he meditates on it day and night. You can't meditate on God's Word, brethren, if you're not studying it. You can't think about it if you're not studying it, if you don't know it. And can I also say that you can't study it and not meditate on it? If we're studying on it like we should, we're going to be thinking about it and meditating on it, aren't we? We're going to be thinking about it as we go about our day and are doing our tasks. We're going to be thinking about God's Word. Blessed is the man whose delight is in the law of the Lord. And in his law, he meditates day and night. The problem is, there's a lot of noise in our world, isn't there? There's a lot of noise in our world. Now, that noise can be sinful in nature. And it ought to be eliminated. There's a lot of noise that is putting things into our head to meditate on that, is, that are sinful. There are a lot of sinful things in music today. A lot of sinful things in television and movies. There are a lot of sinful things on the internet. Those things need to be eliminated from our thoughts. We need not to be meditating on those sinful things. But I tell you, there's a lot of noise in our society that's completely benign. That's completely harmless noise. Sports, many times, is completely benign. Politics might be completely benign. Talk about the economy might be completely benign. I'm going to tell you, those thoughts can crowd out the time that we have for meditating on God's Word. Those videos of people doing their crafts and their cooking, and those are fine. But I'm tell you, too much of that can crowd out our time for thinking about God's Word. Whatever the noise is, if it's crowding out God and crowding out the time that we could be meditating on Him, we ought to think about that. Think about eliminating that. The fact of the matter is, if we're not studying God's Word regularly and meditating on it, we're not going to understand it like we should. 
We can't. We can't expect to understand something that we're not studying and thinking about. If we want to understand God's Word like we should, we've got to study it. In Acts chapter 17. In Acts chapter 17, beginning of verse 10. Acts 17, verse 10. Then the brethren immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. When they arrived, they went into the synagogue of the Jews. These were more fair-minded than those in Thessalonica in that they received the word with all readiness of mind and searched the Scriptures daily to find out whether those things were so. They were happy to hear preaching from God. But they wanted to make sure that the preaching that they heard lined up with what the Bible said, what the Scripture said. And so they heard the word, they were glad to hear it, and then they dug in. And they searched the Scriptures daily to make sure that what they were believing was true. That needs to be the pattern that we have in our lives as well. Studying the Bible regularly. And as we study the Bible, we need to understand the divisions of the Bible. There are two obvious divisions in our Bibles that it doesn't take uh, a scholar to uncover. Those divisions are uh, noted by man, uh, but the, the, the divisions are named accurately, I believe, both the Old Testament and the New Testament. 66 books in the Bible, 39 in the Old Testament, 27 in the New Testament. Kids, if you want to remember how you know if there how many books are in the Old Testament, you just need to remember 39. That's how many are in the Old Testament. And if you multiply 3 times 9, that's 27. That's how many are in the New Testament. 39 and 27. But within those 66 books, there are three divisions of, of dispensations and how God dealt with men. First, God dealt with men through the patriarchs. We call that the patriarchal period. When God talked directly with people like Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He dealt directly with men in revealing His will to them. And then we get to the period of time that we're studying in our adult Bible class now, and on Wednesday nights, where He dealt with them through the law of Moses, the Mosaic dispensation. And God was very clear that that dispensation was not going to last forever. There was going to come another time, a final way that He would deal with man, and that is through Christ, the Christian dispensation. Today we live under the Christian dispensation, and we must take our direction from the Scriptures relating to this dispensation. Hebrews chapter 1 tells us this. In Hebrews chapter 1, beginning of verse 1. Hebrews 1, beginning of verse 1. God, who at various times and in various ways spoke in time past to the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by His Son, whom He has appointed heir of all things, through whom also He made the worlds. He spoke to us through Christ now. We are to follow Christ and His teachings. And the Bible is very clear on the idea that we are not under the Old Testament law of Moses anymore. Numerous passages at our disposal that we could look at to show this, but I've chosen a few. Colossians chapter 2, beginning of verse 14. Colossians 2, verse 14 tells us we're not under that Old Testament law anymore. Colossians 2, 14. Having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us, and he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. Having disarmed principalities and powers, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in it. Christ took out that Old Testament law. He nailed it to the cross. We're no longer under that Old Testament dispensation. You can go on in, in Colossians chapter 2 and look at verse 16. 
Colossians chapter 2, verse 16, mentions specifics that we are no longer required to keep. Colossians chapter 2, verse 16 says, uh, So let no one judge you in food or in drink or regarding the new festival or new moons or Sabbaths, which are a shadow of things to come, but the substance is of Christ. Those Old Testament things, those Old Testament rules and regulations are out of the way. They're off the table now. Uh, Galatians chapter 5, verse 4 says the same, same thing. And it says we cannot go back to the Old Testament and seek our justification by, from following the Old Testament law. Galatians chapter 5, verse 4, You who are, have become estranged from Christ, you who attempt to be justified by the law, you have fallen from grace. The Old Testament law is it's, it's abolished. It's out of here. And finally, uh, as we look at the Old Testament to a passage that we've been studying recently in Exodus chapter 34, I can connect Exodus 34 with a passage in the New Testament to find very clearly that the Old Testament has been done away with. The law of Moses is no longer in effect. In Exodus 34, verse 27, Moses has gone up to the, on the Mount Sinai to receive those tablets of stone again with God's law on them. He's gone up the second time, the first time he went up, and he came down with them. He broke them because of his anger and disgust at the children of Israel and their idolatry. He's gone up a second time with another set of tablets and he's gotten it again. Notice what it says in Exodus 34, beginning of verse 27. Then the Lord said to Moses, Write these words, for according to the tenor of these words I have made a covenant with you and with Israel. So he was there with the Lord forty days and forty nights. He neither ate bread nor drank water. And he wrote on the tablets the words of the, ten, of the, of the covenant, the Ten Commandments. Now it was so when Moses came down from Mount Sinai, and the two tablets of the testimony were in Moses' hand when he came down from the mountain, that Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone while he talked with him. So when Aaron and all the children of Israel saw Moses, behold, the skin of his face shone, and they were afraid to come near him. When you're in God's presence, the light is overwhelming. The light had an impact on Moses' face. Moses' face was so, so bright when he came down from Mount Sinai that the children of Israel were afraid of him. And so he comes down from Mount Sinai with those Ten Commandments on the tablets of stone in his hand. They see his face and they're scared. The New Testament comments on that in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 7. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 7 says this, But if the ministry of death written and engraved on stones, well, that's the Ten Commandments that Moses had as he came off of Mount Sinai was glorious so that the children of Israel could not look steadily at the face of Moses because of the glory of his countenance. His face was shining so much that they couldn't look at him. We just read about that. They were scared of him. Notice this, which glory was passing away. The Ten Commandments, the law of Moses, was a temporary law. It was not a universal, time-enduring set of instructions that was temporary for a time for the children of Israel. We need to understand the divisions of the Old Testament and the New Testament, the patriarchal period, the Mosaic period, and now the Christian dispensation. We understand that we serve under Christ. We follow Him in that dispensation. Furthermore, we need to understand as we read our Bibles who is speaking and to whom. You know, we mentioned as we began our study tonight that we believe the Bible is verbally a result of verbal plenary inspiration that every word is there because God wants it to be there. Every word is there because God wants it to be there. But it is important to understand that not all of the speakers in the Bible 
And not all the words of the, 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 that people spoke in the Bible are inspired. One example of that is Job chapter 2, verse 9. Job chapter 2, verse 9. Then his wife said to him, Do you still hold fast your integrity? Curse God and die. Now that's in the Bible. That's inspired. That's there because God wants it to be there. But you better not ever curse God lest you die. That was the instructions of a non-inspired woman who was a very foolish woman who tried Job's patience by telling him he just needed to give up and give in and just curse God and be done with it. That is not an instruction that people in the Old Testament were to follow, nor is it an instruction for us to follow. In Acts chapter 4, we get into the New Testament. We see an instruction here in Acts chapter 4, verse 18. In Acts chapter 4, verse 18, And they called them and commanded them not to speak at all nor teach in the name of Jesus. Well, there it says right there in black and white in my Bible, don't teach about Jesus. Does that mean I need to zip my mouth shut? No. These were not inspired men who were talking. The words are there because God wants them there, but that's an account of the Jewish leaders telling the apostles to shut up and quit talking about Jesus. I need to understand who is talking in the Bible. Now, this is pretty obvious, but we need to be careful when we study our Bibles that we understand this. We need to be careful because many times we're tempted to go to the, or sometimes we're tempted to go to these accounts of uninspired people to make our case and our points. An example of that is in John chapter 9, verse 31. In John chapter 9, verse 31, when we're talking about uh, the uh, ability that we have to go to God in prayer and how sinners, those who are not living like they should, don't have this blessing. Many times people will go to John chapter 9, verse 31 to bolster their case. In John chapter 9, verse 31, they say, see here it says that God doesn't hear sinners' prayers. And it does say that. Look at John 9, verse 31. Now we know that God does not hear sinners. But if anyone is a worshiper of God and does His will, He hears Him. That sounds pretty definitive, doesn't it? The problem is, John chapter 9, verse 31, is not the words of someone who is inspired. Go back to John chapter 9. And we'll see here in John chapter 9 that this is just a man off the street. John chapter 9 is not an inspired, uh, 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 inspired man talking. Now, I believe he's speaking the truth, but he's not an inspired man. John chapter 9. This is the blind man who has been healed. And the Pharisees and the Sadducees are not happy about that. And uh, they, had, they had set him up. The Pharisees had set him up. Verse 13, they brought him who formerly was blind to the Pharisees. Now it was Sabbath when Jesus made the clay and opened his eyes. And the Pharisees also asked him again how he had received his sight. He said to them, he put clay on my eyes and I wash and I see. Therefore, some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God because he does not keep the Sabbath. Others says, how can a man who is a sinner do such things? And there was division among them. And so there's this question about how could Jesus do this if he's a sinner? He did it on the Sabbath day. Obviously, he must be a sinner. Drop down. To verse 30. Now the man answered and said to them, Why is this a marvelous thing that you do not know where he is from? Yet he has opened my eyes. Now we know that God does not hear sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, he hears him. Since the world began, it has been unheard of anyone that anyone has opened the eyes of him who was born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. Now he's speaking things that are true, but you've got to be careful because he's not an inspired man. He's a man off the street. We've got to go to passages like 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 12. 
if you want the inspired version of whether or not God hears sinners' prayers. In 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 12, for the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and His ears are open to their prayers, but the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. The man happened to be speaking the truth, I believe, in John 9, verse 31. But he was not an inspired teacher. And so we've got to be careful. The point is, we just need to be careful to make sure that we understand who is speaking as we go to the Bible. So we need to understand who is speaking. We also need to understand whom the instructions were given that we're reading. Not all of the commands in the Bible are for us. Furthermore, not all of the commands in the New Testament are for us. For instance, John chapter 2, beginning of verse 7, Jesus is the wedding feast in Cana. And notice what he says. Jesus said to them, fill the water pots with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, draw some out now and take it to the master of the feast. And they took it. When the master of the feast had tasted the water that was made wine, he did not know where it came from. But the servants who had drawn the water knew. The master of the feast called the bridegroom. And it goes on. Jesus instructed some people there to fill up some water pots. And then take that water to the master of the feast. I've never filled up water pots like that. I've never taken any to the master of a feast. Am I disobeying Jesus? No, he wasn't giving that instruction to me. Furthermore, in Acts chapter 1, in Acts chapter 1, he tells some people that they need to stay in Jerusalem until they uh, have received power from on high. In, G in, Matthew, in Acts 1, beginning of verse one, uh, 4, And being assembled together with them, he commanded them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, You have heard from me, for John truly baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Jesus tells people there they need to stay in Jerusalem till they receive the promise from the Father. Does that mean that you and I ought to get on a plane in the morning and go to Jerusalem and wait? No, that was an instruction given to the apostles, not to us. And so as we read our Bibles, observe who's speaking. Make sure they're inspired. And observe who is being addressed. As we go on tonight, we need to make sure that we interpret the Scriptures in such a way that they harmonize. If the Bible is from God, then it must be a harmonious book. And any passage that we read from the Bible must harmonize with every other passage in the Bible. And it needs to harmonize with the general theme of the Bible. I can't take a passage out of the Bible and it interpreted in such a way that it forces a contradiction with any other passage in the Bible. If I take a verse out of the Bible, and the interpretation I take on it forces a contradiction, then I have misinterpreted that passage. Because the Bible must harmonize if it's from God. For example, Acts chapter 16, verse 31. says, So they said, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved, you and your household. There are any number of religious people around us here in Franklin, Tennessee, who would take this passage and say, see here, all you need to do to be saved is believe. If you will have faith in Christ, if you'll simply believe that He is the Son of God, you'll be saved. It doesn't matter what you do or how you live your life. Now, if I take that passage on face value, just take it out of context, if that's the only passage I had, I could come to that conclusion. But if I interpret it that way, then that forces a contradiction with any number of passages in the New Testament. For example, John, uh, James chapter 2. James chapter 2, verse 24. You see then that a man is justified by works and not by faith only. I can't interpret John, uh, Acts 16.31 that all I have to do is believe and there's nothing else that I need to do. I can't interpret it that way because it forces a contradiction. 
Instead, I have to interpret it in such a way that harmonizes with the Bible. And that, the way that I do that is that I understand that believing in Jesus means I'm going to obey Jesus. Belief requires obedience. They're both involved in being pleasing to God. And so I must make sure that I'm harmonizing my interpretation of any Bible passage with the rest of the Bible. Psalm 119 verse 160 says, The sum of your word is truth, or the entirety of your word is truth. I need to take all that God says on the subject and make sure that my interpretation allows me to harmonize the Bible from cover to cover. I've got to make sure that I interpret the Bible in such a way that the Scriptures harmonize. And if you think the lesson's almost over because I'm getting to the bottom of the screen, don't worry, the font's going to get smaller. I'm going to squeeze more in. I need to make sure as I read the Bible that I understand the difference between literal and figurative language. The Bible contains both literal and figurative language. And if I fail to understand this, then I'm going to be opening myself up to a lot of potential misunderstandings and false doctrines. It can lead to a lot of wrong conclusions if I don't understand the literal and figurative language of the Bible. Revelation chapter 20 verse 4 is one of those places where people make a lot of wrong terms by failing to understand the difference between figurative and literal language. In Revelation 20 verse 4, I saw thrones and they sat on them, and judgment was committed to them. Then I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for their witness to, uh, to Jesus and for the word of God, who had not worshipped the beast or his image, and had not received his mark on their foreheads or on their hands, and they lived and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. There are folks all around us today who are waiting for Christ to come back to this earth and to sit on a literal throne of David and reign for a literal thousand years. The problem is that this is figurative language. It's obvious that it's figurative language because are people worshiping a literal beast? No, that's figurative. And so is this idea of reigning for a thousand years. Is, God, is Christ going to set up an earthly kingdom and reign here on earth? Well, no, because that would force a contradiction with another passage. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 17. And when Christ comes back, the second time he's going to come back and not come back and set foot on this earth. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 17. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And thus shall we always be with the Lord. We're going to meet Christ in the air, not here on earth. He's not coming here to set up a physical kingdom and set on a literal throne. We'll meet him in the air, and that's where we'll be with him throughout eternity. We need to understand the difference between figurative and literal language. And I have four more points, but they're quick. We need to make sure that we let the Bible be its own commentary. There are things in the Bible that may on the surface appear difficult to understand. But if we'll let the Bible be its own commentary, it will help us a lot at our understanding. And those passages that appear to be complicated, many of them can be very simple. When we allow the Bible to define terms and explain itself and be its own commentary. One of those we looked at this morning in Revelation chapter 2, verse 1. To the angel of the church of Ephesus write, These things saith he who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. Well, there's some figurative language there. 
That's very difficult for me to understand. He's got seven stars in his right hand, and he's walking among the seven golden candlesticks. Does that mean that Jesus has, does he have some kind of nuclear bombs in his hand, or that's what these stars are? Are these, are these some kind of uh, weapons that he has? What are, what are these stars? What, what are these candlesticks? Are these, uh, these, uh, what, are these some kind of kingdoms of men? Are they some kind of powers? What are these candlesticks he's walking among? Well, I can let the Bible be its own commentary. I can let it define terms. Revelation chapter 1, verse 20, just a few verses earlier, tells us. The mystery of the seven stars which you saw on my right hand and the seven golden lampstands. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands which you saw are the seven churches. The Bible defined terms for me. And the Bible will do that over and over again as we study. Now, it may not be obvious uh, at, at first glance, but we've got to dig in. We've got to study. So we let the Bible be its own commentary. That's why we've got to be studying so we can understand these passages. Let the Bible be its own commentary. And we need to use the simple passages to help with the hard passages. When the Bible is clear on something, we need to use that clear passage to help us understand the more difficult ones. In other words, if we will stand on the teachings of the simple and easy to understand passages, they will help us to eliminate possibilities in those more complicated passages. When I come to a difficult passage to understand, if I've got my feet standing on firm ground with what the Bible clearly teaches, then I can very easily dismiss ideas that those complicated passages might teach. Because it's obvious that it can't teach that because it contradicts with this simple passage. I have to use the simple passages to help me understand the more difficult passages. In 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 16, Peter admits, and Peter had a lot of knowledge, didn't he? But he admitted that some of the things that Paul taught were difficult to understand. 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 16 as also in his, all his epistles, speaking in them of thing, these things, in which are some things hard to understand, which untaught and unstable people twist to their own destruction, as they do also the rest of the Scriptures. Paul wrote some things that are difficult to understand. Peter admitted it. But we can't take those things and twist them and pervert them. We need to make sure that we're using the simple passages to help us understand the more complicated one. We need to study with an open mind. Many times people come to the Scriptures with their mind already made up. And when they're presented with teachings from the Scriptures that are very clear and very simple, their response is, I just don't believe that. I can't understand why God would want me to do this or that. Sometimes people come to the Scriptures wanting to prove that their lifestyle or their decisions are correct, or what they want to do is correct, and so they go to the Bible, and they take a passage out of context, or they misinterpret something, so that they can have some kind of reassurance that God is okay with what I'm doing. This is often the case in the area of marriage, divorce, and remarriage. The, top, the teachings of Jesus on marriage, divorce, and remarriage are very simple, but they get very complicated if I come to the teachings with a preconceived notion or a, a closed mind wanting to prove that what I want to do is okay. I've got to study the Bible with an open mind. Jesus talked about people who would see the truths of God's Word and not accept them in Matthew chapter 13, beginning verse 14. And in them the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled, which says, Hearing you will hear and shall not understand, and seeing you will see and not perceive. For the hearts of this people have grown dull, 
Their ears are hard of hearing, and their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears, lest they should understand with their hearts and turn, so that I should heal them. But blessed are your eyes, for they see, and your ears, for they hear. May all of our ears and all of our eyes be like the people that Jesus mentions there at the end. May they be blessed, because we've not closed them, but that we're open to what God has revealed to us in His Word. We've got to come to the Scriptures with an open mind. And finally, number 10 for us tonight. As we study our Bible, we need to always remember what a blessing God's Word is. God's Word is a blessing. Lots of places we could go, but simply here in Psalm 119, verse 105, Your Word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. We live in a dark world, a dark and dangerous world, with all kinds of traps and pitfalls in it, with a lion that is walking about seeking to devour us. And we have the light that illuminates the way for us to heaven, that shows us how we should live so that the lion can't get us, shows us how we should live so that we can have the best life here and have the hope of heaven when we're dead. God's word is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. It is a blessing. And if we understand it and appreciate it for the blessing that it is, we'll want to be studying it, won't we? We won't let the trivial things of this world erode time that we could away from us that we could be spent studying God's word. We're not going to allow our preconceived notions get in the way of us understanding it. If we appreciate it for what it is, we're going to be studying it and we're going to be following it. hope the things we've talked about tonight have been helpful to you. As we think about studying our Bibles, let us all renew our determination this coming year to be students of God's Word, to be studying it so that we can understand it and so we can be putting its principles into practice in our lives. How are you living tonight? Is there any way that we could help you spiritually? Would you let us know while we stand and while we sing?